my friend that I was doing drugs with went to my mom and said, your son's going to die. After nearly losing his life to drugs and alcohol, Taylor Pop is using his experience to help teens find a better path. He's our guest on this episode of Win This Year. Drugs and alcohol. Bullying. Unhealthy relationships. Depression. Internet safety. Substance use. Body image. Self-injury. Suicide. Anxiety. Social media. Kids. Pre-teens. Parenting. Middle school. High school. Adolescents. Teens. Coping skills. Self-care. Relationships. Strategies. Life skills. Prevention. Solutions. Help. Hope. Leadership. Insight. Information. Inspiration. You're listening to Win This Year, the official podcast of Not My Kid, a prevention nonprofit focused on inspiring positive life choices by helping kids, parents, families, and those who work with youth. Informative, interesting, inspiring. Win this year. Welcome to episode two of Win This Year. I'm Shane Watson, public information officer and prevention specialist for Not My Kid. Episode two is our special recovery month episode. September is National Recovery Month. Every September, SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, sponsors Recovery Month to increase awareness and understanding of mental and substance use disorders and to celebrate the people who recover. The 2019 theme is Join the Voices for Recovery. Together, we are stronger. Win This Year is brought to you by First Check. First Check home drug tests help you protect loved ones from the risks of drug abuse. First Check is the number one pharmacist-recommended brand. It detects up to 14 illicit and prescription drugs and provides over 99% accurate, easy-to-read results in just five minutes, all in the privacy of your home. Go to firstcheckfamily.com and use code WINTHISYEAR to save on your order. Given that our podcast is focused on parents of preteens and teens or educators or youth mentors or people who work with preteens and teens, some people may wonder how an episode on Recovery Month is relevant to youth or people involved with youth. And it's important to understand, according to Casa Columbia, and that's Columbia University's Center for Addiction and Substance Abuse, the average age of first use of drugs in the United States is between the ages of 11 and 13. That is the average age, 11 to 13, which means there are some kids that are actually getting started younger than that. The other reason that this is relevant is 9 out of 10 people who later went on to become addicts and or alcoholics started smoking, drinking, or using drugs prior to the age of 18. That stat is also from Casa Colombia. The age of first use, the age of onset, is one of the biggest determining factors in whether or not somebody's going to go down that path of addiction or alcoholism. Many individuals now in recovery started using during the teen or preteen years. So there is a very direct connection between recovery and prevention for youth. And that's why we're bringing you this episode today. Our guest for this Recovery Month episode of Win This Year is an individual in long-term recovery and a Not My Kids staff member, Taylor Pop. Taylor Pop is one of Not My Kids' most sought-out prevention specialists 
who travels all throughout Arizona and speaks to both large auditoriums full of students and teaches small life skills classes. He's 25 years old and joined the Not My Kid team in 2017. Taylor has been fortunate to celebrate over four years of continuous sobriety after turning his life around following over a decade of addiction. Since arriving at Not My Kid, Taylor has shared his story and skills with over 25,000 students on topics ranging from drug and alcohol addiction, bullying, depression, unhealthy relationships, body image, internet safety, and critical life skills training for youth. Taylor also co-facilitates our Project Rewind program, supporting families through education and early intervention. When Taylor shares his incredible journey with youth, there is an immediate connection. His greatest satisfaction in life and his constant goal is to share his experience, strength, and hope with others and inspire teens to rise above challenges. He joins us now on Win This Year. Taylor, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Your story doesn't start out like a lot of people assume a a story about addiction and recovery would begin. How does your story start? Yeah, I mean, you know, when you think of addiction, right, and you think of substance use or alcoholics, you think of the alley. You know, I, I was raised, you know, I would like to say taught right from wrong from the beginning, right? Like my parents did the best that they could. Um, I grew up in a generally nice area, right? And I was pretty fortunate growing up. And, and, and my parents were present. My family was present. My teachers were trying to help me, right? I didn't, like, I didn't like have all this chaos from a young age, right? I mean, I was adopted at birth, which kind of made me feel weird later on in life. Uh, and I did lose my adopted father at two years old, which also caused a little bit of of uncomfortability, I guess you'd call it. But for the most part, it was very normal. I was a happy kid. Uh, I had a lot of dreams. I had a lot of goals that I wanted to, you know, finish and complete later in life. And I knew that I wanted to be happy like that was like my main goal in life. So it is different than what you would hear or what you'd think based off of, I guess, movies or TV shows or oh, he it was, it was how he was raised is the reason why, right? Or this is the reason why. And it's like, you know, for me, that wasn't my experience. It doesn't fit the cliche. Right. Right. A lot exactly. of people assume that someone who ended up going down the path that right. you did go down have to come from some kind of a chaotic environment. And that's one thing that I've noticed, not only as a person in recovery myself, but as a prevention professional, very often that's not the case. Very often it is the kid from the great family with wonderful parents who goes to an excellent school. A lot of times it's the high achievers. And so it's so important that that message get out from people in recovery that it does cross all lines and all boundaries. It it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, what your thought process, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? It, it it affects everybody. So why did you use for the first time? When and why did you use? What did that look like? Um, I used for the first time when I was 11 years old. And it was at a friend's house with his older brother and his friends. Um, I used for the first time, you know, I think I got to give a tiny bit of a backstory just to kind of describe this. But I... From a very young, from my earliest memories I could ever think about, like my earliest memories, uh, I felt, you know, like I couldn't handle life like normal people. Like I would watch my friends and I'd watch my family and I'd watch everybody and everybody seemed really comfortable. 
right? You know what I'm saying? I definitely like, understand that. Everybody seemed like, oh, they got it figured out. And maybe they didn't, right? Maybe I was completely wrong. But in my head, I was like, I'm freaking out at every second. Like, I felt like I couldn't handle life like you guys. Everybody like, else has the answers and right, I don't. Right. They had this textbook that I never had purchased or nobody gave it to me, you know, and or this novel that was supposed to be read when we first came to Earth, you know, and I I was out of place. That's the best way to describe it. I was very out of place. I was very uncomfortable all the time, all the time. Earliest memories, uncomfortability. Like I said, I was a happy kid, but I knew something was a little, a little off, right? And that grew as I got older. I started seeking validation. I started seeking comfortability serenity and things that I could, you know, instant things, which it started with attention, right? Because when I got attention from you or from Joe or from whoever, it doesn't matter, right? I felt comfortable. I felt like maybe I can handle it. So would you say that attention was your first drug? For sure. Absolutely. I always, when I share my story, I always say attention was my first drug. So how did that contribute to when you finally did actually cross that line into actually using well, drugs or alcohol? So in reality, it was attention that got me to use the first time, right? It, so I was at my friend's house. Uh, I wanted to be a pro skateboarder. That was one of my dreams and goals when I was younger. I skateboarded all the time. And it, it was a lot of my friends over. And like I said, I used with, I smoked weed for the first time with his, his older brother. And his older brother was 18. I was 11. Now, when you want attention from somebody, right? It, like a, I would want attention from a five-year-old. Do you know what I mean? It didn't matter who. But then when you get somebody who is 18, in my eyes that- And you're an 11-year-old kid. I'm an 11-year-old kid. And this 18-year-old is like, you know- That's everything is, to an 11-year-old. Exactly. I looked up to this guy, right? And I always thought he was cool because I knew him. I'd been over to the house a lot. He knew me and he asked me if I wanted to smoke for the first time that night. So it was attention, right? It, it was- it was me wanting to fit in. And if an 18-year-old is asking me to do it, there's no way I could say no, right? With that mind, that mindset that I had, right? Which is not uh, rational, but at the time, it made a lot of sense to me. So when you used marijuana for the first time mm -hmm. at 11, how did it affect you? How, did it make you feel comfortable in your own skin, which you hadn't been, or what did it do for you? Well, I, you know, honestly, I don't really remember the feeling of that substance my first time, but I remember the experience, right? So the experience, not the high per se, but the build up just, to it. Yeah. And just being in the car with these older, these older guys, these adults, right? When I'm at 11 and I'm just looking around and I'm like, I made it. I fit in. Yeah. Now. I made it. Like I, like they like me, right? Like I'm I found I the yeah, answer. Exactly. Here was, is the owner's manual I didn't get. And exactly. I was like, this is what everybody's been doing, right? Or or whatever you want to call it. But I was I was comfortable. I don't remember the high, but I was comfortable and I knew that that's what I wanted to do. Where did it go from there? What did your progression look like? Did it happen quickly? Did it happen slowly? What was that progression like after that first use? You know, I wasn't too smart the first time I uh, used, so I got caught the next day by my parents. And my parents were really strict parents, so I got grounded for a long time, like three months. Um, my progression was very, very fast. But at first, since I got grounded, right, like I, I knew my parents were watching me very intensely. You so, were on radar at that point. Uh, complete radar, right? Like tracker radar. She's going through my phone. Like I can't get away with it. And I knew that. So at the end of that grounding though, um, 
I remembered that that I got the owner's manual when I was sitting in that car. I remembered that I got that peace and comfort and that, you know, uh, best way to put it, connection. This I is how felt. I'm going to get people to right. like me. That's right. what you thought. Right. And I, and I felt that connection. Like I said, I never really felt connected to anything because I felt like I was different than everybody else. So I felt that connection. So I was like, okay, I can't not do this. You know what I mean? So at the end of the grounding, I, I sought out uh, to, to find marijuana to, to smoke weed again. And I knew I couldn't do it with an 18-year-old because, you know, that's a little obvious at this point because um, I knew that I did it with an 18-year-old. And I found a guy in my grade and I ended up doing it. Now, my progression happened fast after I started doing it with the kid in my grade. That's when it happened fast because I was like hiding it from my parents. I was getting away with it for longer, not getting caught the next day, right? And that bled into what else? What else can make me feel this way? Because when you're doing that right. and you're starting to get away from with it, you think you're starting to get away with it. You're not perhaps noticing any immediate health consequences as a result. As a young kid, as a preteen, which you were at the time, right. it's easy to convince yourself there's no price to pay for this. And each time you get away with it, it gets easier and easier, or it seems to. And apparently it seems right. like for you, did you get less and less afraid of whatever potential consequences yeah. were out there? Yeah, you know, my perception of risk in every sense of that statement got less, you know, became less. So so I was less scared that these substances were going to hurt me physically. I felt invincible. And I was less scared of getting caught, right? Because I kept getting away with it. But we all know it, just because I got away with it a couple times doesn't mean I'm going to get away with it forever, right? Like that's not realistic. But when you're under the influence and and you're chasing something, like think about it this way: if you found something that you thought you that everybody left you out of it forever, and you finally get it, you're not going to stop doing that. Especially as a kid. Especially as a kid, because as a kid, you know you already have all your insecurities. But you know, at the age when I started doing drugs, I was about to go through puberty, a lot of hormones and and emotional changes. Like I'm losing it, right? So this was my answer. Or so you thought. Well, that's 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 the thing, right? But but I'm 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 trying to bring everybody into that moment, right? Because that's what I was thinking as a young kid. It certainly it's, seems like the answer, and that's and that's and that's the craziest thing because it is so far from the answer, and a lot of people don't realize that until they're deep into addiction, right? Because they have that same thought when they first get into it. They're like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been missing, yeah, until it ruins your whole life, you know, and you have nothing left. So. You know, it, it progressed very fast for me. Uh, anything I could get my hands on, pills, alcohol, weed, um, all this by 12, 13 years old. You know, anything I could get uh, an effect from. What What are the substances that it led to? You named a few of them. Was there a drug of choice? Was there something that became eventually your drug of choice beyond what you've already named? Or were those your, quote unquote, drugs of choice? Um, I've... I mean, I've done almost anything you can think of, but I, uh, my, dr my main drugs were meth and alcohol. At what age did you start using meth? Probably 18, 18 years old. 18. Yeah. And, and what, what kind of path did that take you down? Because obviously meth is, you know, fairly notorious for what it can do to people. Right. Did you see, at least in the short term, some types of impact from that. Now, obviously, looking back in retrospect, you can probably pick everything out. Yeah. But at that time, did you see short-term consequences from that meth? Yeah, a ton of short-term and long-term, unfortunately, right? Uh, the the short-term consequences were um, 
you know, I mean, I could go into symptomatic things like a lack of sleep. You wouldn't sleep for weeks. You know, I wasn't eating. I wasn't taking care of my body. I wasn't brushing my teeth. I wasn't showering, right? No hygiene. Um, but the short-term effects with all drug use, not just my drug of choice with meth and alcohol, is I, I had nothing. You lose everything doing drugs. You really do. And everybody I've ever met who who became an addict and an alcoholic lost basically everything, right? It's 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 not – nobody's free of it when you, when you once you cross that line into addiction. And – uh, all the the immediate things were my body. I was killing myself. My body was deteriorating because when you don't sleep and you don't eat and you don't drink water, like all you do is drink vodka and do meth. Like you, obviously you're going to have some, some extreme side effects. And I did. And you know, until this day it's, it's affected my memory. Right. And I'm four years sober, like off of everything for four years. And it, all of it has still affected my memory. Uh, it hasn't fully come back. I still have paranoia from my meth use and it's, it's crazy, you know, because when you when you mess with your chemicals like that, especially from 11 on, like think about brain development. I didn't think about it when I was in it because I was like, oh, my gosh, this is the answer, which obviously it wasn't. And now I, I noticed that when you do drugs before your brain's fully developed and you get drunk and you do all these things, especially how I did every day. Right. You are stealing happiness from your future. You are taking your healthy chemistry and you are you're shredding it you are shredding that in your brain because I have deficiency in my chemistry till this day. And Even, not only the chemistry, but at the age that you were at, right. the physiology of that Changed. still developing brain, right. it's growing until 21, 25 years old, that right. range in there, but you don't know it. No, you Because you can't see, if you don't see that huge catastrophic immediate right. consequence, as a kid, you believe it's never going to happen. You say, it's never going to happen to me. Right. Did your family and friends, like when you crossed over, you named pills, you named meth, when you crossed over into these pretty heavy things that you've mentioned, mm -hmm. did your family and friends notice? What did they notice? Did they, did they address this? Did they intervene? How did that go? Um, yeah, I, you know, I think everybody noticed pretty quick um, because the, the kids that even, even people who weren't, uh, I never, let me put it this way, right? I never used drugs and alcohol besides that first time, like in a little amount. Do you get what I'm saying? So everybody around me, if you partied with me or you're so-called partied, right? If you, if you were around me when I was doing substances or drinking, I overdid everything. So it was very obvious that I had an issue. My parents started to catch on obviously because my health declined, my grades declined, my behavior was like so sporadic. Um, and my friends were terrified. Right, because they knew they saw me doing these things. Like, yeah, I would try to hide it because I knew they weren't into what I was doing. How did your friends, your real friends, not the people yeah, you I used know, with, know, right, not right, your right. your using buddies? How did your real friends respond to what you were doing? They, I mean, they tried to help me. They, they, they came to me and they're like, "Dude, like, what are you doing?" Well, many times there wasn't one occurrence where everybody sat me down. It wasn't like an intervention, but like all my friends came to me single handedly over time, and they were like, "Dude, you're getting." You're like doing this crazy stuff and you're going down this path that, that we're concerned about. But here's the deal. And I think this is a lot of people's experience. Like I said, I, I can only share from mine, but I think this is a lot of addicts' experiences is I heard what they were saying, but I didn't hear what they were saying. Do you know what I mean? Like You weren't absorbing it. Right. Like I, I understood the concern and don't get me wrong. I knew why they were concerned logically. But for me... When I am in the middle of addiction, I still think this is 
like I like I need it to live. You can't see clearly no. what everyone around you can see. No, you know how you need to drink water to live. You need to eat food to live. Uh, you need to sleep to stay alive. Um, and we need to reproduce as humans, right? Like these are instincts that we are born with. The way I look at addiction is when, you know, the physiology, like you're talking about, your brain changes once you cross that line of addiction is it became one of those instincts to me. My brain would convince me that I needed to drink and needed to get high to live. But really, it was killing me, right? The de- the delusion behind all of it. But it, that's how I felt. So when my friends came to me and my mom would cry and my dad would cry and my family would cry and they would try to help me, I was like, I appreciate it. <laughs> but there, was, there wasn't even a second thought for a long time. Did people suggest treatment? Did you go to treatment? Tons, tons of treatments. My parents from, it was about 14 or 15, they threw me in my first program. Like it was an outpatient, uh, which means like group setting, you know, kind of like group therapy almost. You go like multiple times a week or something? Yeah, I went like four times a week. Like it was very intensive, right? And uh, I was on drugs the whole time, you know? Uh, I was hiding it. I was doing what I could to, to be intoxicated the whole time. And uh, then I got out of there and then my parents would put me in somewhere else because they, they understood how serious it was. I did too, but when you're under the influence, you don't care. So with my parents, they were like, this is very concerning because my friend that I was doing drugs with went to my mom and said, your son's going to die if you don't do something. So, And when somebody who is caught up in that themselves... Right is able to see that someone is becoming so self-destructive right. that they can notice, that speaks volumes. It's, it, it, and that's, and she knew he did drugs with me. You know what I mean? So that, it hit her. She was like, oh, wow, you know, I really got to make a move. And they did, ev- and that's just what I'm saying. They did everything that they could. How many rehabs total would you say? How many programs? I mean, eight to 12. Eight to 12 yeah, at least. rehabilitation and then, programs. And that doesn't count detoxes, which is like where you get off of drugs and alcohol in a hospital setting, you know. Um, I've been to a ton. Like if you're including like the counseling groups and All stuff of like that. that, yeah, it's like 8 to 12. Is there anything do you think that anyone could have done during those years that would have gotten through to you or was it a matter of, uh, of you just not being receptive yet? Because parents are going to listen to this right, right. and parents are going to wonder – you know, it sounds like your parents did what they're supposed to do, mm-hmm. and they put you in those treatment facilities. What could anyone have done, or was it a matter of just you were not ready to let that message sink in yet? You know, I mean, I've, I get this question all the time, you know, when I'm talking to parents. And when, and when I'm talking to students that struggle, they'll be honest with me, and they'll be like, you know what? I want, I don't want to do this, but I can't stop doing this, right? Um, you know, I don't – I think they're – there possibly could have been something, you know, that could have changed it. And, you know, of course, people want to know, well, then what would that that have been? Um, and I think it was kind of what everybody was doing because here's what I believe, okay? And uh, let me describe what I'm talking about. When my mom would sit and cry in front of me, why are you killing yourself? Why are you hurting the family? Why are you doing this, right? Little did I know, okay, and a lot of people don't understand this or like they just don't think about it this way, is that my mom was planting a seed in my head. Like a seed. So it was working, but it, it was going to take time. Exactly. So everything that everybody did say to me, every rehab I went to, every place where I did therapy, every t- group that I did with a bunch of other addicts, every time my mom cried to me, every time my friend went to my mom and said he's going to die, whatever it was, it's planting a seed in my head because I knew about it. 
I had them confronting me. At the time, you would say the terminology, oh, one in one ear and out the other, but it's th- that's not the case. And that's something that I think is really important for parents, right. grandparents, guardians, educators to hear. It is. It's real. That the messages often do get through. Mm-hmm. We may not realize they do, and sometimes they take time to come fully to fruition in that young person. That's and that's what it was. And it took, unfortunately, it took a really long time for me. Right, like my parents started putting me in rehabs at fifteen. I started using at eleven, you know, and then I got sober at twenty-one. So it took a lot for me. But some people, I've seen some people who it didn't take as much, right? Who are addicts and alcoholics. And I've seen some that it's taken longer. You know, it it's very important though, because you need to understand that those seeds grow into trees. And I say this all the time to everybody I talk to. And none of that time was wasted. None of those conversations no. were wasted. No. And I were and it's in, you know, now that I'm sober and I got a clear mind and I've been away from drugs and alcohol for a while, it's I remember all of them. It's so crazy. You know, and at first, of course, my memory was shot the first couple of years, and it still has trouble, but I literally remember every time. Everything that that my parents would say, everything that uh, law enforcement would say when I'd get in trouble, like literally, I remember, and it really did affect me. At the time, you don't think it is, but it it absolutely is growing into this bigger thing that you have no idea about. You mentioned getting into recovery, getting sober at the age of 21. People talk about rock bottom, that moment where everything came crashing down for them. What did the end look like for you? And I call it the end. It's really the beginning. The sure, end of sure. your drinking and using, how did that end? Yeah, I mean, it was exactly it was the rebirth, right? It was it was a chance at a new life uh, or or another life almost. It's like completely different. It, it ended because, you know, uh, to sum it up, the, the end of my story was I, I had nothing, like I said. I had no friends. I had no family. Granted, I'm not saying my family wasn't, you know, there. I still talk to them occasionally, but they they didn't think I was ever, you know, at that point going to get sober, and they didn't trust me. And my friends, I had no friends, you know. Uh, nobody would really take me in. Uh, but I was sleeping on the floor of this apartment because these, uh, these three females did end up taking me in and letting me sleep there for a little bit. And why did they take you in? Uh, because I was bringing them drugs and alcohol. Okay. So they let me stay on their floor. Um, and I was sitting, you know, they they held a job. The only job I ever held when I was getting high and drunk was uh, Wendy's for eight months. All the way up until 21. That's the only job I ever had. You know, like for the most part. <laughs> like that's maybe a couple months at some other things, but that was it, you know. And um, so I'm sitting in this apartment and it's nighttime and I'm drinking a bunch of alcohol and I'm doing a bunch of drugs. And I start crying start sobbing, right? And drugs and alcohol make you numb for a while, uh, but there is no numbness here. Every emotion possible I could feel, and it was all the bad ones. And I started screaming at the wall, and I was like, you know, if there's anything out there, help me, because I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I want to die. And I knew for a fact that uh, I was going to die. Like, I was going to pursue that for sure if um, something didn't change. Were you wanting to die I was consciously? Go- consciously, absolutely. You all were I, consciously wanting to die. All I wanted to do is die. I prayed for cars to hit me. Because I know yeah. that some people, when they reach that point, they, d- they don't care. Mm-hmm. They just assume it's going to happen. They just give up. But then there's also people who are looking for that end. They're, that's, they I, want that escape in that moment. It. I was looking for it, for sure. And it, and it's terrible. You know, I don't think I would never wish it on anybody, that position I was in at the end. 
And I and I wouldn't wish hating yourself on anybody because I completely hated every fiber of my being, all of it. You could take it all because I hated it. And that's what drugs and alcohol do, man. You, it's funny because you can hear the the beginning of my story when I was talking, and I was like, oh my gosh, I found the answer. Listen to this in the apartment. You know, I have nobody. I have nothing. I hate myself. I want to die. And that's honestly, you can go to almost any addict and alcoholic that you've that has ever claimed to be one who is sober today, and they will tell you the exact same story. Different circumstances, different situations, same story every time. And uh, I uh, prayed to not wake up the next morning, and I did. You know, obviously, uh, thank, you know, thankfully, right? And I woke up, and uh, something happened, right? I I had a bottle of alcohol next to me. I had drugs. Um, but I didn't want to use them for the first time. For the first time since age eleven. Well, so and you're 21 at this point. I'm so for, for a decade, mm-hmm. a decade. You know, there were stints where I didn't want to use, but it was because I was forced into rehab and I couldn't. You know what I mean? Like this was like the real moment when I really didn't want to. You were choosing, right? I was choosing, which I hadn't had a choice for ever since I was probably 12, 13. And uh, because it became an instinct, it became something I needed to live. And I'm at this point, but here's the deal is I knew I had a short window. The fact that I got that moment of clarity, I knew it was so short lived. So I knew I had to make a choice within the next probably 20 minutes, right? Or else I wouldn't be here today. That window of willingness is often very, very short. And I know how to drink and I know how to do drugs. And those are both right next to me. I've done that forever. So... I either take the bottle, unscrew the cap, chug the alcohol, even though I don't want to. Physically, I know how to do that very well. And drugs, I know how to use them. So, Or I pick up my phone that's right next to me as well because that's the only thing that I have that that is of you know uh, materialistic value uh, that still is paid and, um, and call for help. Because you know, you hear that when people are addicts and alcoholics that uh, they lose the power of choice. I agree with that to an extent, but you still have the choice to reach out for help. You always have the choice to reach out for help. I did the entire time, but I didn't, you know, because I, I didn't want to change. But I got to this point, I saw this moment to call for help and I did have the choice and I did want to change, so I did it. And it was the hardest thing I ever did was to pick up that phone and call for help. Who did you call? So I called my mom um, and I think my mom was in a different state at the time. Um, and I called her and I was like, you know, I, I want help. Now, remind you, the my parents didn't think I was ever going to get sober at this point, right? They, they definitely thought they were going to have to bury their kid, unfortunately. Um, and my mom's like, you know, I'm out of town. Like, you know, I knew she didn't believe that I was going to, you know, get sober. At the time, she always hoped it, but I knew she didn't really believe it. And she's like, call your aunt. Maybe she'll help you, right? And that was all our conf- uh, phone call was. So I called my aunt, and uh, I could have said forget it after talking to my mom. But I knew... I, there's something pushing me. I just, I knew this was it. This was it. Or else I wouldn't be here. And it's funny because the night before, I didn't want to be here. But all of a sudden, I wake up and I have this newfound willingness, that clarity. So I called my aunt and she sent my little cousin, who's always looked up to me. She was probably 16, 17 at the time. And, you know, she knew I was on drugs, but she didn't know how bad it looked until she saw me. And nobody did until they, they saw me. You know, it was. Probably 120 pounds, 6'2", skeleton. What was that like having your cousin, who you said looked up to you, seeing you like that? What was that moment like? Defeat. Pure defeat. It was. The, I, I, I'm trying to relive it just talking on this microphone. How did she take it? Oh, she was 
She was, I mean, she held it. She was trying to hold it together for me. You know, she had to be the 16 yeah. year old had to be the strong one so in that she, moment. She was for sure 10 million times stronger than I was at that moment. I've never been more of a broken person or man in my entire life. Besides when I got into that car and she drove me to the hospital. Never, never. And she held it together. She cried and I cried. You know, it, it, it was an emotional moment. But she she uh, was very she was the adult by far. And that's not unusual either. I mean, we've seen that. It's it's not uncommon to sadly see grown adult well into their adult years addicts and alcoholics who have children way younger than 16 years old forced to be mm-hmm. essentially the adult in the family because that older person, that parent who should mm-hmm. be that parent figure right is paralyzed by that addiction. And and it- it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard. It's so hard. You know, I see a lot of parents or, you know, and a lot of them are sober today, but I've, I've known so many people in recovery today, thankfully, um, that got custody back, but lost their kids. Um, they couldn't be the parent They're, you know, they, they couldn't parent, they couldn't do anything. That's how you know how insidious and powerful addiction is. It's, it's I sad. have seen people lose things that, Sober people, people who never went down that path would say, okay, that would get me to stop. You would think it would get you to stop. I have seen people incarcerated. I've Mm -hmm. seen people lose their rights. I have seen someone lose an arm due to infections from intravenous drug use. I have seen people nearly lose their life. And as you just said, I have seen people lose their children and it wasn't enough to get them to stop. That right there. Mm-hmm. tells you how insidious mm-hmm. and how powerful addiction can be. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You know, and I I didn't choose to ruin my life for fun. You know, when you were 11 years old, you had no idea when you smoked for that first time, when you used marijuana for that first time, you had no clue where that path was going to go. I had no thought about how crazy it was going to get and how and how horrible it was going to be. Nobody wakes yeah. up and says, I want to be an addict. I want to be an alcoholic. And, and you know, it's it often, as we see in your story, it often starts with a kid who doesn't fully grasp the gravity of the decisions they're making. Right. By the time they're at an age where they should be able to understand the gravity of it, sadly... They've been poisoning their body and their brain for so many years that their faculty to understand what they should be able to comprehend logically at mm-hmm. that age has been it's been damaged. It has. Right. So what what clicked with you? What was different when you went to treatment, mm-hmm. your cousin took you? Mm-hmm. What happened? What was different? You know, I had I had a bunch of uh, strange events happen. You know, you call them miracles, you can call them whatever you want, but they they were strange, you know. I would I was sitting in rehab and two people came and spoke about their experience of how they were, you know, heroin addicts, cocaine addicts and got sober and, um, and that they had some time sober away from that. And it wasn't necessarily what they said, but I had a moment where, like I said, a strange moment where, you know, the term where your life flashes before your eyes, right? I, I envisioned my life, but it wasn't, it wasn't all the good times. It wasn't when I was young. It was every bad thing I've ever done in my life flashed through my my mind. Every bad thing, all the drugs I did, all everything. Every time I hurt somebody, got arrested, whatever it was, right? And I couldn't hide from the truth anymore. I couldn't. It and was, all this as you're withdrawing. 
yes, when I'm coming off of alcohol. And in, for those who don't know, when you drink alcohol like I do, which is, you know, 30, 40 shots a day, you can have a seizure and die if you don't get medical attention. So it's very important that if you are a, a, an insane amount of, uh, you know, insane drinker, that you have to get medical attention. So I'm feeling horrible. I feel like I'm dying and I'm having this experience where I can't hide from the truth anymore. My choices, my decisions are, are what got me to where I was. I, I'm never, I pointed fingers my whole life. The only finger I should have been pointing was at myself. Everybody tried to help me. I ruined my life. I did all of this, not them, right? So I'm sitting there and I knew one thing. I gotta do everything different, right? I gotta do it different. So I started to do it differently. And as time went on, these strange events of what I'm talking about, it's like a thought was placed in my head. It's not a Taylor thought. Tell, let me tell you, Taylor thought is get high, get drunk. That's all I know. It was a thought like, hey, maybe you should try something different. It, that kept coming in my head. And I was like, well, what is this? You know, because that's not how I think. It was like my whole thinking changed. So I started listening and I started most important thing about sobriety and recovery. I started acting. I started making decisions that were healthy, that would help me grow, that would take me away from the drink and drug. And, um, you know, June 18th, 2015, when I got sober, cause I just got, you know, four years, a couple months ago, it, I, I literally did everything everybody told me that I, everybody that I should listen to told me, right. Everybody who, who had time away from drugs now the healthy people yes, around exactly you. exactly people that were making healthy choices and you know even in the recovery scene um through my experience in sobriety with the four years sober you you get people that you know are still doing certain things that you probably shouldn't do being sober and you learn uh to stick with all the healthy people and it's and it's difficult you know this is a lifelong struggle and that's something i've noticed that you emphasize to kids that you're interacting with, stick with those healthy people it's, because you're going to become what you surround yourself with. I can't, especially if you have a mind like mine, you know, I can't, I can't stress it enough. And I understand, I get the logic behind, I make my own choices. No, I'm not going to be like everybody around me. Trust me. I get that. You're your own human. I, I, I'm not, I'm not bashing that at all. But my experience, because that's all I can share on is, right? And everybody I've ever met who has had my brain or close to it who you hang around is who you become. I literally till this day still will become the people I hang around if I'm not careful. So I have to pay attention to like how I'm acting and check myself consistently. It's crazy. And I've had to cut people out of my life sober tons because they're doing things, not getting drunk and getting high, but doing things that I'm, I'm not trying to be anymore. You know, I'm trying to be a better person every day, a better tailor every day. That's my goal until I die. And, um, it's a lot, it, you know, a lot of people have to leave, so. You've talked about changing who you surround yourself with. Yes. You've talked about listening. Those are obvious two big differences from when you were drinking and using. Mm -hmm. What else have you changed since you've gotten into active recovery? What helps you? What energizes you? What are you passionate about? How do you stay sober today? You know, I stay, there's so many things that add to, to what helped me get through life today and what helped me manage and help me stay sober. I'll just name a couple of them, right? Meditation is very key to me. I have a, a lot of anxiety and I think a lot of it, I had anxiety obviously my whole life from my story. You can kind of tell I was uncomfortable all the time and anxious, but drugs and alcohol made it a lot worse. So when I got sober, my anxiety got worse than it ever has been. 
right? Because I don't have something numbing me out anymore. I'm literally terrified, panic attacks all the time. And um, meditation is very key. Breathing exercises are very key to bring me back down to earth, to keep me grounded. Um, and that gives me energy too, right? I sleep for the most part very well today. I try to be cautious or uh, conscious of that. And I, uh, I eat healthy. You know, I exercise, I drink a gallon of water a day. Like I try to, you know, take multivitamins. Like I try to take care of myself today. It's like the exact opposite, right? The main thing that keeps me sober though is um, one, the friends that I have today. They're incredible. They're actual friends. That every other time before I got sober, when I said friend, it was not a friend, <laughs> right? But today it is. And they're there for me no matter what. So I call them and talk about my emotions every day. That is one main one main thing that keeps me um, sober. I go to like groups. I have meetings with people that know what it's like. And we relate and we talk and we help each other. That keeps me sober. And the main thing is I help other people get sober, stay sober. Now, that is the main thing is giving back what I have today. Because I shouldn't be here. So I have to help these other people. You know, all the people struggling with addiction. And I love what I do when I speak to students at high schools because now I get to do both sides. I get to help those who are trying to get off of drugs and alcohol. And now I get to go into auditoriums and speak to thousands of kids and tell them, hey, this is my life. This is where I got myself. And this is where this leads you. Maybe you can you can find a different path. I've walked this so you didn't have to walk this path. As somebody who works with kids every day, what do you see out there? What are kids saying? What are kids going through? Kids are going through a lot, you know. And uh, and and I'm not I'm not contributing contributing all of it to this, but you know, everybody's so um, connected but disconnected. If I can say that in any way, and I'll describe what I'm talking about. But social media, um, it's great, and I'm not demonizing social media. Uh, it could be used for a lot of things. You can make start businesses, and you know, it's great connection. It is. But what I see with these students that I talk to and what I see um, from their social medias or younger students' social media is that um, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of trends that are not necessarily healthy that are being followed, right? And that's, that's every generation has had a trend that's not healthy that people want to fit in, you know, and be popular, so they follow it. But there's a lot of uh, very, very intense trends. Like, the things that they are willing to do to get likes, it's, followers, subscribers, or clout on social media that genuinely not only could be risking them getting in trouble, uh, yeah. risking actual physical harm in some of those cases. It's, you know, it's, and that's, and that's what it is. You know, it's the chasing of that. And when you see, because what I hear in music, um, music that the youth listen to today, specifically, not... Not any other music, and you're plugged into that. Yeah, that's I listen. I listen to that type of music, but the cool the, the thing about that is, is I pick up on what that influences because the media influences us just as much as our friendships and those around us, right? It, it, but it's so much more subconscious, which is insane. You know, the stuff that is being said in music today is, you know, depression is a trend. And um, it's almost like a badge of honor. And I've noticed there, there's a there's a good and a bad to this. I've noticed that that we have artists now who are speaking out to young people, right. hip hop artists like Logic or like NF that are talking about mental health or behavioral health in a constructive way, which right. is fantastic. Right. But I've also seen 
the not only the promoting but the glorification of things like self-injury and things like that in social media or in music as well so it's there's two sides to that no and and yeah it's it's i do there are both sides there's definitely both sides but the one that is so much more prevalent is the dark side i i see it and don't get me wrong music for decades there's been bad and good music on both there were sides. cocaine references yeah, and blues songs in the 1920s and 30s and that's what i'm saying and you know but the thing is 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 when i was in high school okay depression was not a it wasn't how it is today it's like it's so glorified and so like if you're happy you're cheesy which is so backwards to me you know and and don't get me wrong my whole life i was depressed and wanted for the most part, not be here. But if you take true clinical depression and real depression or bipolar or mental disorders and you've experienced that, it's not cool. And to see someone promoting it as it, it's a trend. It makes me upset. It makes me and, upset. And it's important that I yeah. uh, differentiate here. We're not talking about the fact that we live in an era where it's finally becoming acceptable to talk about it. That's amazing. No, that's We need to talk about it. But I, I have seen, I know what you're talking about, where it is the glorification of it, it itself without the, the glorification of the healing process or the solution. It's, you know, reaching out for help is the strongest thing anybody can do. That's not what I'm talking about at all. Um, the kids that are doing this are not reaching out for help. They're either doing it for attention or they um, are following, you know, these tra- these trends that I'm seeing. And the students that talk to me, it's not just what I see on social media. You have to understand, I am in high schools every you day. You are directly connected, yes, teaching in- life skills classes, yes, right. facilitating an early intervention program, doing presentations. I am dealing with every different type of student in today's youth. And you can, di- I mean, you know, people will disagree with certain points that I'm making, but I am in the front line. I'm in the front line and I talk personally to them about what I've, I've, about these things. I've brought it up to students. I've been like, what do you think about your generation? What do you think about um, the behavior? And tell me some behaviors. Tell me what's going on. And it's the same things that I'm saying. They're, they're like, nobody cares anymore. Everybody wants to die. And, um, and it's very, it's sad. It's so concerning because, you know, my biggest thing ever because i've been depressed my whole life since i've been sober i've struggled with depression and sobriety but for the most part the last couple of years i have been trying my hardest to spread positivity in every manner i possibly can in my life especially to the youth because it's so much better to be happy why would you want to be depressed you know and and here's the problem with the the depression trend not just the depression trend is it leads to escape because you actually if you think if you think negatively all the time and you think about all the bad things in life, and you're that never th- can be a risk factor for substance use. That can be a risk What's factor for self injury. Right. That can be a risk factor for right. suicidal ideation. It's it's my experience is the more negative you think, the worse everything's going to be, and the more positive that you think, things are going to you know for the most part go your way. Obviously, that's not a hundred percent right, but there's something connected to that. I've seen it. So based on your experience, uh, your perspective, what you see every day, what do parents need to know? What might we as parents be missing? You know, and, and that's and that's the that's the hard part. So you know how I said, you know, they're, they're posting these these, oh, I don't want to live and you know, these depression trends. I 
I think that when you were talking about students reaching out and talking about mental health, like we're not, we, that, that needs to happen. That's not what I'm talking about. I think people are actually taking it as a joke because they kind of see it as a joke. Because when the students post it, it's not like usually super blatantly like, I hate my life, I want to die. It's more it's pre- presented as a joke. Yeah. Um, and it's like there's probably a lot of truth behind those jokes that they're posting because most kids that I've talked to have told me that there's a lot of truth behind the things. That so what are those kids that are doing that need from, and I said parents earlier, I'm going to broaden that to the adults around them. What do we need to do, to, to know? Mm-hmm. What do we need to do? What can be done? Connection. 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 It's the answer to it all. Um, and that's all I ever wanted. That's all these kids want. Um, and they are putting on, I guess you'd say the mask or the front that they don't, but they do. Would you say that that is the thing that kids need the most from their parents in order to stay sober, healthy, thriving? Connection and, um, yes, that's the main, absolutely, I stand by that. And, um, you know, encouragement, being, being, being there for them. Right. Being which, present, which is part of connection, right? So that's why I say connection because that encompasses a lot of different things, right? That's conversation, that's dinner time, possibly, that's whatever you want to do to spend your time, right? That's personal time and serious time. While we're putting down our right. phones, because it's, a lot of us as parents, we look at preteens and teens, and I've heard many adults comment on adolescence overuse of technology mm-hmm. we as parents we need to make sure that we're putting our phone down mm-hmm. and that we're setting aside that time where we're actively engaging we are right. truly actively listening when they try to open up to us right i um connection has given me what i've always wanted and what i've always been looking for in drugs and alcohol literally 10 times better i am so content because of the connection that I have with my family and my friends and, you know, my coworkers and the students that I talk to. Because I build real connections with these students. And I'm telling you right now when I'm teaching life skills and I'm there for 10 weeks with these, the youth. You get to know them. 10 weeks, like three That's days a, a week. Three days a week, same students, 10 weeks. And I get there and I try to connect to as many as a whole, of course, but single-handedly as I possibly can, okay? Which is... As individuals, yeah, not a room, is, not a room full of people, right? It's not, and I, because here's the deal: is they're humans, and they needed to know that. And what what is missing is they don't feel that connection. They don't feel respected. They don't feel like people care, so they don't care, you know. And and when I connect with them on an, on an individual level, I'm telling you right now, I see changes. I see incredible changes. They come in and they're like, Taylor, good to see you. They'll give me high fives. They light up. I can see it in their face. You can see in body language people's demeanor and kind of where they're at. Not always, but you can pick up on that, right? Big changes. Big changes. I've had students come up to me, be like, hey, man, ever since this, I, uh, I've changed my life. I put down the drugs. I had students uh, last week in my life skills call me over when, before I was leaving at the end of school, and they're like, you you don't smoke weed anymore? And I was like, no. And they're like, you haven't in four years? I was like, no, I don't do anything. And they're like, wow, like... I I I want to do I want to get to that. That's what I'm talking about. Because I sat multiple days with that table and I was like, guys, where are we at? Like, let's be real. And I would talk to each of them single-handedly and they're like trying to make changes now. 
connection. Because they felt like they could be honest with you without yes. fear of judgment. Right, and I don't judge them. Who am I to judge? I am simply going in there, and they're also, it's scared of judgment, and it's also very much so scared of getting in trouble. Now, since I am teaching in a school, I have to very much so go about it in a way to tell them, hey, this is for you to get better. I was a meth addict. I'm not judging anybody, okay? And I'm not telling on anybody because that defeats the purpose. I am talking with you so I can help you be the best you. What does that look like? And that's what's happening with these students, man. Not everybody, because like I said, some people have a different path that takes a lot longer. But I see it, I see it, I see it, I see it. Treating people like human beings and building this connection with somebody is what, what we need. And prevention's the only way, the only way to help minimize addiction. And I've noticed that it doesn't always have to be a parent. Now in your case, obviously you're not their parent. You know, a lot of times we assume, people assume that it has to be a parent. Well, a strong parent, a, a strong parental presence is huge. I mean, right. that is absolutely uh, huge. Absolutely. But a strong adult presence is absolutely key. And what I've noticed is we went to a um, adolescent summit a few years ago. We were there. Some of the Not My Kids staff was there. Mm -hmm. And we work with youth, and everybody there works with youth. And we a lot of us think we know what preteens and teens want or what they're going through or what they think. But we had a panel. They had a panel with about six or seven young people on it from ages probably like 12 through 18. Mm -hmm. And they opened up questions to the audience. And they said, you can ask these young people anything you want to ask them. Wow. Somebody asked them, who was the adult that made the biggest difference in your life? Who was the difference maker for you? So they went down the panel, and it was what you would think it would be for the first few kids. It was like parent, grandparent, mm -hmm. teacher, parent, grandparent. They get to a 16-year-old boy at the end of the panel, and they said, who was the biggest difference maker? What adult made the difference in your life? He said, the biggest difference maker in my life was the security guard at my school. Mm. She stopped me from killing myself. Mm. This is not a parent, it's not a coach, it's no. not even a teacher. It was an adult that took the time to create the rapport, exactly. address him as an individual, Connection. get to know him, and the security guard at his school stopped him from taking his own life. And that's what I'm talking about right there. That is a beautiful, a beautiful thing because that's connection. It doesn't have to be a parent, it doesn't have to be a grandparent. It could be, it could be anybody. It certainly can and be. And that's the point, it could be anybody. It could be your friend. Right. It could be literally anybody because there are multiple. I have tons of people that I have different connections with that make life worth living today. That's how I get through life. So I, that's that's an incredible experience. What would your message be to parents who have preteens or teens who are newly sober and trying to stay that way? You know, just very being very supportive um, of them, you know, and. I know because because as a parent, and I could speak through my experience with my parents when I first got sober. You know they yeah they're very oh are you are you okay today? you know it very which is great they're trying their best but they're they're panicky hyper vigilant yes they're very okay. hyper vigilant and and I'm not saying that's completely a bad thing you ha you know of course it's human instinct especially when your child was on drugs and you're scared of their death like you're gonna be hyper vigilant that they're staying sober but it also makes me very anxious and uncomfortable and want it like it makes me want to do things almost because because i'm uncomfortable and i think like you don't believe in me you know what i mean so it's very much so like hey being supportive i got like you can do this 
What do you need from me to help you stay sober? You know what I mean? And kind of, kind of not putting the ball fully in their court, obviously, because that's, they can, it can go the wrong way, but it's, it's definitely uh, building that connection, having the conversations that need to be had. And, um, the best thing that my parents ever did, cause they did tone that down a little bit after I talked to them was, um, the supportiveness. Like, Hey, if you, if you need to go to a meeting, if you need to go, uh, here, you know what I mean? What do you need me and dad to do tonight? Cause you're stressed and, and you are, you are thinking about using or drinking. You know what I mean? Like there were certain things that they did and it made me feel like they cared once again, connection. And, uh, that very much so helped me. So I think the conversations need to be had, even though it's uncomfortable, it's scary want to have those conversations understanding that someone newly in sobriety needs to take certain steps and and take Tons. action right and supporting that person in taking that action and you mentioned something really important too one of the best ways parents can know how their child that's newly in recovery can benefit from their support what they need from them ask mm-hmm. ask them exactly what is it that you need from me right now and see that's 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 with any relationship in life because they're going to tell you. Trust me, they're going to tell you what they need from you. Um, and then whatever they tell you, then that, you know, you figure it out from there. But th- my parents asked me that kind of stuff, and it was perfect because I felt like they cared. And then I could give them the real answer. To stay sober today, I need this from you. It's all back to communication, which is one of the primary tools that we have in prevention. Maybe the biggest tool that we have is communication. Sometimes Absolutely. taking five minutes, sometimes taking one minute to have a conversation and be clear. A lot of times we assume that person that we care about, we assume that they know we're there for them or we assume that we know what they need. Take that 60 seconds, have that conversation one more time and make sure that you're abundantly clear what everyone needs from each other and you can save so much time, trouble, heartache, etc. Exactly. And, and you know, yeah, my mom knows that I love her, but I try to remind her you know, and I try to say those things and I tell my friends how they mean something to me. Cause like, yeah, I'm sure they know, but we need those things as humans. That's part of connection, right? That's part of our relationship. So you're absolutely right. Anything else you'd like to add? Anything I may have overlooked? You know, I, I say this in every, uh, presentation. I think we covered literally everything you possibly could, um, for the most part, but I say this in every presentation that if you are breathing, you can always change your life for the better because I thought that I was too far gone. Absolutely. Way too far gone. I did not expect my life to be this way today. But the reality is, is if you are still here, you can make your life better and you can make different choices no matter what. So it's to anybody who listens, even it doesn't matter if you're a teen or not, or if you struggle with addiction or not, it doesn't matter what you struggle with. It's staying motivated. It's pushing yourself because you can change and you can do this and you can have a good life. Everybody, everybody can. Takes work, but you can. Taylor Pop, prevention specialist for Not My Kid, life skills facilitator, independent hip hop artist, and person in long-term recovery, our guest for our episode on National Recovery Month. Taylor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, thank you. It was incredible. And if you would like Taylor or any of our prevention specialists to come out and speak at your child's school, your house of worship, your community group, give us a call. Contact us at NotMyKid. Visit our website at NotMyKid.org or give us a call at area code 602-652-0163. Once again, that's 602-652-0163.
Once again, we want to thank Taylor Pop for being our guest on this special Recovery Month episode of Win This Year and for making it clear that recovery is possible. If anyone listening to this show is struggling with drug or alcohol addiction or is helping someone who is, there is help, there is assistance available. We have a resource we want to give you that we will also put in the show notes, and it is the SAMHSA Treatment Locator, SAMHSA being the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration that we mentioned in the show opening. Their treatment locator can be found online through findtreatment.samhsa.gov. Once again, that's findtreatment.samhsa.gov, G-O-V. And as always, we want to give you three resources related to suicide prevention and intervention. If you're having thoughts or feelings of suicide or you know someone who is, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-TALK. Teen Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-248-8336. That is 800-248-TEEN. And the Crisis Text Line can be reached by texting the word LISTEN to 741-741. Again, text the word LISTEN to 741-741. If you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please be sure to like, subscribe, and share this show with those you know. If you have questions or concerns you want to suggest a future topic or guest on Win This Year, email us at winthisyear@notmykid.org. That email address, one more time, is winthisyear at notmykid.org. As always, all the links and the resources that we've mentioned during the show will be in the show notes as well. Thank you so much for listening to Win This Year. We will see you next week with a substance use prevention roundtable with myself, Not My Kid CEO, Kristen Polin, and Not My Kid Prevention Specialist, Tomas Barraza. I'm Shane Watson, Prevention Specialist and Public Information Officer. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening to Win This Year.